I remember the rumbling. It felt like a freight train. And it goes on for a while, maybe 15. The tornado tore through our small town like a giant weed whacker. So much water was coming into them that they couldn't drain, and so the water just went and filled into the city. This is Design Safe Radio, where natural hazards researchers strive to make our society more resilient to everything nature throws at us. Today on the 36th episode of Design Safe Radio, the show that talks about everything nature has to throw at us and how scientists are working to make our society more resilient. Next time you're on a road trip, count how many bridges you go over. How many of them do you think are structurally deficient? Probably more than you think. (laughs) Our guest today is on the front lines of inspecting and prioritizing the repair of our nation's infrastructure with innovative test methods that he and his team developed in partnership with the Nary site, UT at Austin. I'm your host, Dan Zaner, from the Natural Hazards Engineering Research Infrastructure Network Coordination Office at Purdue University, and this is Design Safe Radio. Well, thanks for joining us on another episode of Design Safe Radio. Um, we've got a really cool guy that I met at the uh, Rapid Workshop a couple of weeks ago out in Seattle. It's been great getting to know him a little bit and uh, seeing all the. Re- research that he's been up to. We have Naveed Jafari from LSU. Uh, Naveed, welcome. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been uh, really cool to get to know you a little bit uh, when we were out in Seattle. Um, but for the audience, can you tell us a little bit about kind of where you're from, where you grew up, and, and how you got to uh, the, your career down at LSU? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I grew up born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, uh, my dad's a geotechnical engineer, so right. No kidding. There, yeah, so there's a connection right off the bat on why I'm in geotechnical engineering. And so I would, growing up, he would take me during the summers um, to do some hand augering. I don't know if it was for punishment or just to get <laughs> field experience. Builds character, right? Right, right. And especially if you're going down like 15 to 30 feet, after, uh, oh. after a while, it, it gets pretty tough. And, and in the summer heat, so... Uh, grew up in Memphis. I went to the University of Memphis for my bachelor's, and I worked with David Ariano at the University there. Um, he's also a geotechnical engineer, and that's when I first started working on geotechnical engineering research. Um, I would say, um, actually, one of the big things growing up before I got to college, which was around 2007, it was around the recession period, um, was uh, Hurricane Katrina. Mm. So my dad being a geotechnical engineer, being familiar with geotechnical engineering, and then seeing Hurricane Katrina um, on the news, it was just huge because knowing that this was something related to geotechnical engineering and it had caused, caused this much devastation from the levee failures and our flood wall failures. So that was a big moment kind of growing up was like, wow, that's a big, for geotechnical engineering, I felt that was our, not necessarily limelight, but that was us at the forefront saying, hey, what we do is very important. Mm. So I got to the University of Memphis and I knew from the get-go that I wanted to do geotechnical engineering. Uh, So I worked with David Ariano 
And he got me started from a freshman year working on undergraduate research. And my first job was shoveling sand in and out of a box for drainage pipes. So awesome. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. And yep. so I was just shoveling saturated sand in and out of a box. And it just kind of grew from there. After the first year, I was setting up the entire test and then I was designing the own tests. And then by the time I finished up, I had an honors thesis. So it was actually a really really good experience and uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, so that research involved um, geosynthetics. Uh, what they were look, looking at was uh, geosynthetics with drainage pipes. So uh, the idea is geofoam placed on top of a pipe. And if you think about it, if you have a drainage pipe beneath the ground, it's gonna compress or displace a little bit or deform and once it deforms, you're going to have some soil arching, and that's going to cause even more load to be um, attracted to that pipe. So with the geofoam, you actually put something that's compressible. Um, actually, I think I flipped that up. So you're going to have to edit that out. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> all right, that that one you're going to edit out. All right, so um, let me take a you to edit. Yeah, actually, you know, I'll, I'm going to skip that story. All right. So I'll just say, um, I'll pick it up. So having worked with David Ariano, I had an honor thesis. So that would be your cue to start up. Um, so I was looking for graduate schools during my undergraduate. And I had a couple of ones I was looking at, but one of the big ones was University of Illinois. And some of the mentors that my dad had at the University of Memphis, Thomas Fry being one of them, he was a professor at Memphis, was an Illinois grad. So my, my dad had foundation engineering by Peck Hansen Thornburn. He had soil mechanics and engineering practice by Terzaghi Peck Mestri. So those classic texts I already had in my possession was reading them. So Illinois was very high on my list for grad school. Always uh, good to see another fellow alumni. <laughs> yes. And, and so I uh, received a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship to work with Professor Tim Stark at the University of Illinois on landfills. And it became my PhD topic, elevated temperatures on landfills and publications pursued. But another opportunity that came up while working for Professor Stark was, um, he was an expert witness for the Department of Justice and Army Corps of Engineers, part wow. of the Hurricane Katrina litigation. Really? So it, it all comes back to loop. So 2005, I looked at Hurricane Katrina being, this is a seminal moment in geotechnical engineering. And I am a grad student getting to work on those projects or those failures. So completed the circle. So we were expert witnesses for the Department of Justice and the Army Corps of Engineers. And we were looking at the IHNC, Inner Harbor Navigational Canal. And that was one of the critical areas where there's eye wall, flood wall failures. Um, and those eye walls protected, protected the Lower Ninth Ward, which, which is a historically um, African-American community, had been there for a very long time. So it's one of the most devastating uh, parts of New Orleans that, that was impacted by Katrina. Um, and so we looked at not necessarily what the failure mechanism was, but proving that under seepage beneath the eye walls was not a mechanism. And that was important for um, whether the core was negligent or not. Ah. And so, and so um, we worked on that and was able to 
uh, get really good experience. One of the, I think, um, uh, cool things from that project was they spent several million dollars on the site investigation. And so you're looking at, wow, over like a hundred consolidation tests, field vein, shear strength, CPTs, four field pump tests on, and these soils were not sands, but organic clays. Oh. So you had this really big data set that I've continued to publish uh, since coming to LSU on really good data on soil behavior in coastal Louisiana. Mm. Um, and so we worked through the project and like I said, the mechanism was under seepage that they wanted to prove to plaintiffs. And when you have an organic clay with a hydraulic conductivity of 10 to the minus six, that was just not possible. So part of the you other- did all these soil um, characterization tests to prove that by its very nature, this soil couldn't have water seeping under it in, in a levee situation. Right, exactly. And it was, you have to describe this to the judge who's not technical. And that was the key thing. It was, it became very apparent that under seepage was not going to be an issue at this site. That was not the failure mechanism. From a geotechnical engineering perspective, that makes sense when you have a low hydraulic conductivity. But a judge doesn't understand that. Yeah. So I barely understand that. <laughs> right. So you have to visualize or give some kind of visual, um, aid to the judge. And so what we used is they had a field pump test. So typically you run a field pump test for sands and gravels aquifers and where you have thousands of gallons of water being pumped. These field pump tests, which were very expensive, um, they were pulling water out of the ground and it was going into a 30 millimeter beaker. That's how much water they were pumping. So Whoa. So that's very small amounts of water. About 30 milliliters in a minute was, was, was what was pumped versus a typical pump test, which is several thousand. Wow. And you show that video to the judge saying, look, we're pulling water out of the soil strata and nothing's coming out. And you kind of get the sense that, okay, well then water can't go under it and to the, from the canal side to the protected side with that kind of visual aid and that was really helpful wow so so um being able to technically transfer what we were learning from the site characterization to the judge that was the critical part and that's what allowed us to actually win that case that's awesome so what, what yeah. did you they find out was the, the ultimate failure mechanism there well we've said um I think the IPET report said that overtopping was the issue at the IHNC. And they, there was two different breaches, a north and a south breach. The north breach was slope stability related. The south breach was related to overtopping, scour, and erosion. Those are the two mm. explanations so far. But the critical thing about this case was it wasn't to prove the actual mechanism. It was to just say under seepage was not an issue. So that it wasn't a design or maintenance issue. Right, right. Um, and so just keeping that in mind when you're doing this case was really important. You don't get off track with studying something that wasn't important. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I, my PhD dealt with landfills, but I had this side project dealing with flood walls and site characterization, soil behavior. So I had two different areas where I was working in. 
And when I was looking for faculty positions, the LSU position opened up and I had this natural uh, segue with the IHNC flood walls and all the work I had done there. Oh yeah. And um, it made a really good, a perfect fit to come down and continue this flood protection, coastal protection route that I had already started at Illinois. Um, and so that, so those were the topics I worked on. Um, and then Professor Stark was a huge mentor for me, um, always uh, giving me advice and insight. And he did a lot of things that gave me confidence. One of the things was, um, so my PhD work was on landfills and uh, we would be working with the Missouri Department of Natural Resources on one of their facilities that had um, a elevated temperature event, we would call. And the attorney general from the state of Missouri would get involved. So we would actually go to um, St. Louis to meet with the attorney general and he would actually bring me along. Oh, wow. So I would actually get that insight of how the state government or how they were approaching the problem bringing the technical side as well. Wow. So when you, when you say elevated temperature event, you mean like a fire at a landfill? Uh, for the public would consider it a fire. The waste industry doesn't want you to call it a fire because there are legal implications that will cause specifically um, uh, what would, they would call in the technical violations, right? Notice of violations. Right. And uh, then they would have... Um, the EPA or the, the state would uh, have uh, it would get a bunch of fines and all sorts. Exactly. Of Thank you. Fines. Exactly. I was I was thinking of fees, but I'm getting into the faculty mode, so it's uh, no, it's, that's all right. So <laughs> there's uh, there's yeah. like the the word fire would imply you know deliberate intent to burn stuff. No, this or, is actually the the mechanism of why it started is very difficult to pinpoint just mm. because there's so many things in a landfill that oh, could yeah. potentially heat up. And so uh, these were a fire. There's two different fires. There's one underground and one that you see if you were going, um, if you're cooking or barbecuing outside, that's what they uh, call a flaming combustion. Yeah. Uh, where you actually see the flames. The ones that we're talking about are underground with low oxygen environments. So uh, there's a lot of technical terms thrown out, such as smoldering or pyrolysis or a combination of the both, of both of them. Uh, and so what would happen is you would have this facility and it has a muffin top. And what I mean by muffin top, uh, this facility is a quarry wall and it has around 240 feet of waste and then about 80 feet above ground, creating kind of like a muffin top. Oh, okay. And so because you're having these processes that are very high temperature, you're actually de thermally degrading the waste. And by the time the reaction proceeded and did its course, that muffin top was completely gone. 80 feet of waste was completely sunken into the quarry. Wow. Right. And so we have time-lapse images that show it just basically sinking into the quarry. So what, is, what effect does that have on the surrounding environment? Uh, that's a great question. That's still something that we need to look into. Um, obviously, there's a lot of odors. 
oh yeah associated um you're thermally degrading the waste so there's potential um air toxins that could be released um but it also impacts the landfill because it there's land uh leachate and gas collection and surface cover infrastructure that keeps all the containments inside the landfill that uh, are impacted by high temperatures. So that that's the area that we were focused in. Oh, okay. Yeah, that had to be um, probably not the most pleasant research topic, I bet, but it sounds really interesting. Right, right. But it, it's impacting the community. So the societal benefit is immense. Oh, so yeah. It was an interesting problem because of just the impact to the local communities. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's just something you don't really think about. I mean, you, you, you put something in the garbage, it's out of sight, out of mind, but then there's a whole system that has to deal with that. Right, right. And the landfill community, I think, was going, it was progressing, and then these elevated temperatures were recent events that were capturing the attention of the waste industry. So it was a relatively new topic when I was transferring or graduating from undergrad to graduate. And that was the topic we wrote my NSF graduate research fellowship on, was looking at these landfill events because of the impact they have on communities. Mm, cool. So, so you got through that, that experience and your kind of tangent project has led to where we're at now at LSU. So, so you're continuing um, to do the coastal research at LSU. What's your, what's your research focus now? Right. So getting to LSU, obviously I did a lot of landfill research at Illinois, but moving to LSU, there's a whole new set of problems that they deal with. And it is a natural hazard, let's say Disney World in a sense. You have smorgasbord of hazards down there. Right. You have river floods such as the Mississippi River. You have um, rainfall events, you have hurricanes, you have long-term sea level rise, you have subsidence. All of these are coming in uh, in one location, that's Louisiana. And on top of that, we have significant land erosion. So when we cut off the Mississippi River from sediment, it wasn't building the wetlands anymore. It wasn't adding sediments. And so these wetlands have, over the past 100 years, degraded significantly. Mm. And I think one of the statistics is a football field an hour of land loss um, in Louisiana. Uh, but the wow. way I, I typically think of it is I think from they quantified the number and it's like 1900 square miles of land loss between 1930 to let's say 2010. I think that's the equivalent of losing New York City every 13 years. So the five boroughs that's the amount of land they've lost. Wow. And so people in Louisiana are trying to bring this to the attention of everyone in the United States because Louisiana has significant implications to the economy. You oh, have yeah. ports, you have fisheries, and then you have energy, all centralized in Louisiana. Mm. I mean, this is a problem that, you know, if you're talking about modifying any part of the Mississippi River system, that's multiple states in the federal government that's got to get right. involved. Right. So my research since coming down here, my first thing was to just get to know the lay of the land and understanding what the no big problems. Intended. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
getting to know what's, what are the big problems for Louisiana, and this was a big component. So there's a state agency in Louisiana called Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. And a lot of what they do is flood protection. So they have a flood protection group that oversees the Mississippi River levees. It oversees the history system, the hurricane storm damage risk reduction system that protects New Orleans. Then you have the restoration side. And so when I started looking into research topics and how to help Louisiana, there's been a lot of work on the protection side. I mean, we've been building levees since the 1800s or even before. And we've codified that the Army Corps of Engineers has guidelines, design guidelines how to build them. So you have the levees and there's been a lot of work on that. What hasn't been really looked at is the restoration side. Now what we're dealing with is natural infrastructure. So mm. What I mean by natural infrastructure, wetlands is a natural infrastructure, mangroves, um, oyster reefs, uh, beach and dune systems, barrier islands. These are uh, systems that are naturally placed during uh, geological events such as the Mississippi River. Um, um, and not only do they provide ecosystem benefits such as fisheries, um, re recreation, but they provide a protection benefit as well. So think about mm. a storm surge approaching Louisiana. If you have 60 miles of wetlands in front of New Orleans versus no wetlands, those wetlands are actually like um, providing friction or roughness to that storm surge and will actually reduce the storm surge before it reaches the city. Oh, wow. And so some rule of thumbs are every, um, let's say 60 kilometers, I think the rule of thumb is like every 60 kilometers is one meter of storm surge. Wow. So if you have these wetlands in front, then you have basically a buffer to the storm surge. Mm. And it adds a protection value. So how many you know, kilometers of uh, wetlands were there in you know, say 100 or 200 years ago in, in front of New Orleans that have degraded now? That's a great question. I actually don't know the answer to that um, other than to say it's been significantly degraded in front of New Orleans. Because that would be an interesting thing to find out, like, you know, say there was no degradation of that wetland system, how much less storm surge would there have been in something like Katrina, right? Right. And then could it have, you know, helped our infrastructures uh, resist that hazard? Exactly, exactly. So um, that's a big area of research that I'm interested in. And cool. so what, what I'm interested in is um, a lot of people look at the rule of thumbs of how much protection or storm surge reduction do those wetlands provide. But what's, what gets overlooked from a geotechnical perspective is those uh, hurricanes are bringing a lot of hydrodynamic forces and could potentially actually erode the wetlands during a hurricane. And so no one's ever quantified or developed models to say, okay, with this hurricane storm surge waves and current with this path, uh, we're getting these forcings on the wetlands. We have this shear strength of the wetlands. Are you going to have uprooting or failure of the wetlands? Or are they going to actually provide that benefit that we are assuming they're going to provide or not. Hmm. How, wow, that is, that is a really complex, multifaceted problem. So how right. do you test that? 
So essentially, I, I simply think of it as a slope stability problem. You have the hydrodynamic forces pulling the vegetation and soil up, and then you have the vegetation and soil matrix providing resistance. So think of it as slope stability. You have your resistance at the top or your numerator, and then your driving forces as your denominator. And so my work so far has been looking at quantifying the resisting forces mm. of the vegetation. And so looking at essentially a global shear strength. And so one of the things that my research has gone towards is, well, how do we quantify the strength of something that's so soft that sometimes you just sink knee deep into it when you walk on top of it? Uh, taking a sample is difficult in the wetlands. So when you yeah. go to the wetlands, it's mushy, it's swampy, there's mosquitoes. Um, if it's a freshwater marsh, you have to deal with alligators and snakes, but if it's salt marsh, it's a little <laughs> bit better. And so one of the techniques that we've recently developed is modifying the cone penetrometer test. Uh, basically a probe that we stick into the ground with a load cell to measure the resistance. And we've made it such that we can just carry all the equipment with us on into the wetlands. So we've made it light and mobile. Wow. And it's, and it's hand operated. And we've had to modify the tip so that it's a bit more sensitive so we can capture the very low shear strengths that we're dealing with. But now we're able to actually quantify fresh to saline marshes, seeing what's the effect of fresh or salinity on the vegetation and soil. Hmm. We're looking at, well, what's the uh, effect of different vegetation types? So if you have Spartina alterniflora versus a freshwater vegetation, what's the difference in shear strength? And so the implications of that is, well, a lot of the wetlands near Louisiana were fresh. But when you start cutting canals, when you start uh, creating these levees that are preventing freshwater from getting to them, they start turning into salt marshes. Now, when you change from freshwater to salt marsh, how is the shear strength changing from that? Mm. Wow. And that is really cool. And ho hopefully that, uh, that CPT probe also doubles as a uh, alligator deterrent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that's why a lot of my research has been in the salt marshes where there are no alligators. Ah, that's good. <laughs> so the first time I actually went out to the field, I went out with an ecologist, John Day, who's professor emeritus and a really big help. He has 40 to 50 years of experience oh, wow. in Louisiana. And so he would pinpoint to me all the different things going on in terms of impacts that you either natural or man-made on the wetlands. And I told him, hey, I've got this technique that I want to measure the shear strength. And he was like happily getting me to the field and the first site he took me was in um, Slidell, near Slidell, Louisiana, on Lake Pontchartrain, north uh, side of Lake Pontchartrain. And so this was a freshwater marsh. Now, and I was coming from Illinois, so I hadn't seen what a wetland or a swamp <laughs> looked like. And we get out there, and this was, you start getting out to the swamps, and this was an easy site. They had... Um, boards so that you can walk on top of and the next thing you know i just see all of these snakes laying on the boards just you know uh just hanging out <laughs> yeah just you know just you know getting some sun and you're like john uh let's just stop walking here we'll do the tests here i don't want the, there was a snake laying on the board in front of us like 
all right, John, we're not going any farther. We're just going to do the test right here. So we went back and, and tested uh, uh, away from the snakes. But it, it was, that was a, an experience. Because on one hand, you're trying to do your research, make your measurements as good as possible. The other hand, you're worried about if there's a snake and it come right behind you and, and bite you. <laughs> Yeah, was, these are like, you know, Florida lances, I'm imagining, or, or rattlesnakes or something that you definitely don't want to mess with. Right. So, yeah, if I got bit by one of them, we would have to go to the hospital. Um, yeah, I was wearing a chest waiter and I thought I was completely protected. And of course, I don't know if they were trying to scare me or just tell me the truth. But John was basically, no, they, they can still bite through that. I was like, okay, well, let's... let's <laughs> So a lot of my research is in saltwater marshes at this point. That's, that's good. <laughs> Stay away from the snakes. Leave that to, right, right. Leave that to Indiana Jones and, and John. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so part of my research has been, been dealing with natural infrastructure. So I mentioned the wetland side. Another thing that Louisiana is really focused in on is recreating wetlands. Um, and what I mean by that is we had a lot of land loss one of the ideas is why don't we dredge sediment that may be offshore in the Mississippi River or nearby and actually rebuild the land. And so we can, um, by just dredging operations, recreate land and basically um, build up coastal Louisiana. And that's a major undertaking. Yeah. And that dredging operations is essentially another geotechnical problem. You have sediment transport coming into a contained or confined cell, um, which is ringed by containment dikes, and you have self-weight consolidation of fine grain materials. So you're looking at a consolidation problem. And so here again is where my research has gone towards is looking at using, um, uh, or just trying to understand self-weight consolidation for a marsh creation project is what it's called. Hmm. Um, and there's been previous work on self-weight consolidation in tailings ponds and also dredge fills. Uh, the Army Corps um, dredges all the navigation canals. That's one of their missions. And when they dredge all their materials, they have to store it somewhere. Yeah. And so historically, they've built these mounds of dredge materials, and they've used a lot of the, or they've actually developed most of the theories for self-weight consolidation. Hmm. And so what we're doing is taking that knowledge and applying it to wetlands. And what makes wetlands a bit more difficult is in the confined dredge disposal areas that the Army Corps deals with, they're just stacking as high as they can and making it consolidate as fast as they can. In a wetlands environment, in order for wetlands, it's a living system. So you need yeah. to have the wetlands at a certain elevation within the tidal frame so that it is inundated but not waterlogged. So you want water to reach it, but not completely inundate it forever, because then the wetlands is going to die. Um, so you have this tidal prism that you have to have your elevation in. On top of that, you have relative sea level rise. So you have sea level rise oh, and yeah. subsidence, which is changing that tidal prism with time. And so if you think about it, you're, as a geotechnical engineer, supposed to predict the consolidation 20 years into the future. So you're trying to map out its elevation with time while considering that the elevation you're shooting for is also changing with time because Whoa. of sea level rise. And that becomes a much more difficult problem. Yeah, 
that is kind of a mind bender to think about. <laughs> right. Right. Wow. So um, we were we were out in the the rapid uh, workshop a couple of weeks ago. Is this kind of the applications that you're using their equipment for, or can you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. Um, so I so I have. Um, all right, let me uh, take a step back. Do you want me to answer? Um, the rapid project was related to Hurricane Harvey, so I can talk about that. Oh, okay. And then, and then uh, I can kind of mention how I think I could use the rapid facility for some of my research. Yeah, yeah. let's talk about how you how you used it uh, in that project, and then we can kind of go into your future research. Okay. All right, so after Hurricane Harvey, Nina Stark from Virginia Tech um, forms a team with GEAR, the Geotechnical Extreme Events Reconnaissance um, Group. And we send out a team or we go out to coastal Texas to see what impacts there are to coastal infrastructure. So the team members were, um, Nina Stark was the lead, myself, um, Ravi from Clemson University, and then uh, Jean-Louis Brio from Texas A&M who sent his PhD student, Iman Chappie. Hmm. Uh, so we go out there and this is, and an ordeal in itself we're a couple of days just after the hurricane so oh, everyone this is, is hard to get out there it's very hard to get out there so we flew into san antonio and drove up or i should say down to the coast corpus christi area and we started from corpus christi and went all the way to galveston bay in three days and documented all the different uh damages that we saw so port Aransas was heavily hit and so some of the things we noticed first off was the uh, the major impact of the storm surge and winds was in the Port Aransas area, uh, which is just east of Corpus Christi. So Corpus Christi was not directly impacted. That was still um, okay. So, but Harvey had two components. One was the storm surge, one was the rainfall. And we noticed as we were going east towards Houston, you had the area impacted by the wind field from this Hurricane Harvey. But the rainfall then had impacted the communities from there to Houston. And so now you had uh, a series of rivers, the Guadalupe, Colorado, Brazos River, flooded because of the rainfall. And so our observations so showed that there was significant erosion and scouring of the riverbanks and potentially of the bridge piers or the foundation of these infrastructure. Oh, wow. Um, due to these high water levels. So that was one of our observations. And so we went back to the National Science Foundation and wrote a rapid grant to further investigate the infrastructure um, and the riverbank at these three river systems, Guadalupe, Colorado, Brazos. So we uh, actually used the rapid facility at the University of Washington, their terrestrial lighter to document a lot of the erosion on the riverbank and uh, bridge abutment piers, or bridge abutments. Um, and so that was kind of our first, we were the first ones to use their equipment and it went great. And we're still going through the post-processing of the data. So hopefully everything will, will turn out great. And the, what we wanted to use that information is basically, uh, one of our sites was in Brazos River and there's been significant erosion around this one uh, riverbank meander. And 
there's been significant slope instability using the terrestrial LIDAR, we can get the failure surface and the morphology of the land so that we actually can then run slope stability analyses mm. on the, on the, uh, at the site. Uh, so that's what we're going to use that equipment for. And so we're in the process of analyzing that data. But what the Rapid Center presents is actually a really good opportunity to not just do pre or post hazard reconnaissance, but also to incorporate into your research. So one of the areas that I could see using the Rapid facility equipment is uh, for instance, there is the Zebo, and that's something that we saw together. Yeah, that was at really the workshop. Cool. So there is a lot of the Zebo is very maneuverable in tight spaces, and obviously in Louisiana we have a lot of water, and that could be very beneficial for, for instance, like a marsh creation project. And so imagine you have that containment dike again, and you're pumping sediment inside there, and you're going to actually build land with time. Yeah, it would be really nice if you had that Z boat to get your bathymetry before you put any sediments, mm. and then you can use the Z boat as you're building land to see how you're building land spatially and temporally. Yeah, so it can be just running, and you would have these transects laid out that it could actually then help you model the sediment transport process going into the future. Hmm. And then you can, yeah, tie that into LIDAR as well. So you can have your built land, the elevation of that, and also your bathymetry and integrate those two. So now you have yeah. an idea of how well you're actually building the land. And you could, you know, use it for planning ahead of time to, you know, see where, you know, the natural set of sediment transport is happening, those processes, and then be able to plan where you're actually going to, you know, put that dredge material. Exactly. So right now it's a, it's a black box. And so using this equipment would help us resolve or understand where that sediment is actually going. Hmm. That would be, that is going to be really amazing to see how that, that pans out. Mm -hmm. um, so for people who didn't have the, the opportunity to go to this workshop, like if you were going to say scan part of the, you know, mouth of the Mississippi River or something, you know, a small portion of that, like, how long would it take to get that bathymetric scan and the LIDAR of the coast, you know, for, you know, a, maybe a small area even? That's a good question. And that's a question that we brought up in the workshop that how, so the answer is, I don't know. Um, that's a question that remains to be seen. And I think, I guess this is, you can edit this out, but NSF needs to fund a project so we can figure it out. No, we should but, keep uh, this in so that they know all right, it's. All right, well, okay, well, let me rephrase that. Well, so to answer your question, we really don't know how, how rapidly we can get bathymetry in what conditions, whether it's, if you think of the Mississippi River, it's fast moving. Can it withstand that flow of the Mississippi River to actually make measurements? Or a marsh creation site where it's just static water might be easier. And so you might be able to get better coverage. But we need to have a project. I think it would be really beneficial if the NSF funded a project that we can actually um, get those coverages. Yeah, sounds like uh, once the rapid is up and running in September, somebody needs to get to, get to work on writing a grant. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> grant proposal, that is. So, that would be really cool to see. 
Absolutely. We can bring you out and then we can do a follow-up conversation there as well. If you like. Yes, absolutely. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so those, that would be kind of an idea for using the rapid equipment. Um, and obviously in coastal Louisiana, we have a lot of beaches. So using the Z boat to, to understand the cross shore and long shore processes, say such as at Caminata uh, headlands, which is the uh, beach that protects Port Fouchon in Louisiana. And Port Fouchon is critical for Louisiana and the US because it's the port that services all the platforms in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, wow. So that there's a beach and dune system that protects it. And so using LIDAR and the Z-boat to actually see how it's impacted by a hurricane would actually be very important. Yeah. Well, let's, let's hope we're um, able to get it out there before anything hits so you can get the before and after uh, right. scans. That would be really, really important to that project, sounds like. Absolutely. I, I think um, having a before scan is very critical to coastal applications. I, I'll say that in geotechnical engineering, when we do these reconnaissance efforts, it's usually after the fact. And so sometimes we don't know what's there before, but it becomes that much more important for coastal applications because it's already a dynamic environment yeah. from the get-go. And I would say then for coastal applications, it's important not just to have the post-survey immediately afterwards, but to go back several times at some set interval to understand what are the long-term processes affecting what's happened um, due to an extreme event such as a hurricane. Yeah. So repeat surveys are very important. Sounds like Rapid's gonna have a lot of repeat business. <laughs> I think so, I think so. And I, and I think that's kind of what the trend will be. Yeah, or you'll have this kind of ebb and flow of a whole lot of activity of reconnaissance during a hurricane season, although we haven't seen that so far. Um, right. you know, it's it's early August, it's early, early August. <laughs> um, you know, early August by the time we're recording this, so we still got you know, three months left. Uh, yeah. this hurricane season and then you know maybe we'll have reconnaissance this this year maybe not and then right surveys during the off season right so like one example would be as we've now documented the guadalupe colorado and brazos rivers and so now we have a starting point if there's another flood there to go back and see what are now the impacts from that flood to this flood yeah that'll be really cool to see i agree yeah, this has been a a great conversation, and you know, as we got to to talk, uh, you know, last couple of weeks has been every time I get to talk to you, I learned something. So this has been great. Thanks for for taking the time today. And uh, I've got one more question for you, which sure. uh, you've probably been thinking about is if you have a a personal story with a natural hazard that sticks out. I know you've been through a few of them down in Louisiana. Sure. Uh, is there any one that kind of sticks out to you? Yes, I, I would say, and this was within the first year I had moved to Louisiana, it was the 2016 August flood of Baton Rouge. And I, I think it goes by the great flood of Baton Rouge now. And this was around the same time, it was about August of 2016. And it had been a couple of days we've had rain and it rains a lot in Louisiana, but this rain was a little different. It was just continuous. And it had gotten to the point where you start to worry like there's been a lot of rainfall and a lot of the drainage systems within the city are having trouble 
removing that water. And I actually was leaving town to go to a conference in Chicago uh, when the worst part of that flood was about to happen. So it had been raining for a couple of days and I was about to leave town. And when I leave town, I go from Baton Rouge to New Orleans and fly from New Orleans to anywhere I want to go. And I was looking at roads to get out of the city and all of a sudden the interstate is closed. Whoa. And then, so I had to, it was around that stage where I first realized that what's happening right now is actually really serious. And there was a couple more days of rainfall planned. And so I managed to use one of the side roads to get out of the city and connect to the interstate system a little farther downstream, I would say, towards New Orleans, because New Orleans wasn't being impacted by this rain. So this system was strictly just sitting on Baton Rouge. Wow. Um, and so I actually watched this event from Chicago unfold. So I was safe in Chicago, but everyone else in Baton Rouge was being impacted. And what happened was you had, not the Mississippi River, but you have these two smaller rivers, the Comey and the Amy Rivers. And basically they had been backflowed. So, so much water was coming into them that they couldn't drain. And so the water just went and filled into the city. Whoa. And the communities impacted, and a lot of this deals with land use, land change, from the past 20 years. So these areas had been built up considerably the past 30 years. And so water that typically would have just maybe stayed in the soil, made it slower to the rivers, were now being run off from parking lots and homes. And so that just compounded the, the impact of this flood. Um, so I came back into town after all the waters had received from this conference uh, receded. And I was just kind of it was devastating to look at driving around town to see all these communities had been impacted. And one of the ways um, that I saw was I would drive through streets and everyone was basically who had flood damage had to throw away anything, anything and everything in their house. Whoa. So, so you had entire streets filled probably five to 10 feet, the entire curbside of just waste. And what I mean by waste, that's your belongings. You're talking about yeah. couches, clothes, TVs, refrigerators, food. Um, anything that you imagine you have in your house is being thrown out. And you saw this street after street after street, community after subdivision, and uh, subdivision after subdivision. Um, and so that kind of seeing that actually was one of the genesis of one of my later research projects, one of my other rapid grants actually. So I noticed that we were generating a lot of waste debris and obviously I have worked on landfills, my PhD yeah. work. So now I was making this connection of, okay, there's a lot of waste debris. How does this get to the landfill? What are the implications downstream? So I followed the track. So looking at oh, wow. how, how it's actually this waste debris is picked up from the curbside transported to the landfill and it's basically there for 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 a very long time and i started to notice the process of how we reimburse these contractors to collect and dispose of the waste debris and it's really astonishing how crude it is oh yeah at this moment the basic process for waste debris 
uh, reimbursements is you have a middleman, basically a consultant, monitoring consultant, who monitors the contractor picking up the waste. And they hand a ticket to that monitor saying, or to that truck driver saying, okay, this is what you've picked up. Go to the landfill now. The truck driver from that, uh, who picked up the waste debris, hands the ticket to a monitoring consultant, same company, at the landfill. And they have a station where they just look inside of the truck to see how full it is. So essentially, there's someone subjectively saying how full a truck is based on a volume basis. And that's how we're making reimbursements for waste debris collection. In the and it's only by cubic feet of debris. Right. Cubic yards of debris based on purely eyesight, not saying how much you're actually moving. Or what it is. Or what it is. Exactly. Um, and so one of the rapid grants I received after Harvey was trying to do something more quantitative. And so we used hmm. drones and smartphones to collect images that we could analyze using photogrammetry to actually predict a volume from uh, the waste debris piles at the curbside. That would be really helpful. I, I, so I was part of the recovery team from Team Rubicon for, t for um, Hurricane Harvey down in Port Aransas. And yeah. part of our metrics was how many cubic yards of debris did you remove from a house in a day? Right. And our, you know, the team leader for each day had to kind of estimate. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. exactly. And, it was, and that was part of how, you know, Team Rubicon served the community was like, you know, got there was so many dollars per cubic yard um reimbursement that didn't have to be paid back from their you know fema loan right because right. we did the work for them right so uh anon pupala from university of texas arlington myself we went to beaumont to actually quantify some of the waste debris generated after harvey um, but the genesis of that research idea and that rapid grant was the 2016 baton rouge flood that i wow. lived through so that was kind of my local experience with the natural hazard. Wow, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that because that'll be really impactful. It's another one of those things like kind of like the landfill. You just don't think about it until you're in it, but realizing I mean, this is a big factor of you know these large scale hazards and disasters. Right. That's a lot of money if you are getting this quantified improperly. Right, and so it's... One thing I do want to mention is it's not just upfront quantifying how much the cost of that waste debris is, which is, um, I can't remember the actual reference, but it's around 25 to 30% of the recovery cost for a community is just the waste debris component. But if you look at the landfill side, the landfill infrastructure side, I want to highlight this because people, we dispose of this and we landfill and then people forget about this waste. But in actuality, this waste impacts landfills a lot. And I was talking to someone from the waste industry, asking them, so how does this really affect you down the line? And so the 2016 flood was maybe two to three years old now. That waste hasn't really impacted that facility. But what they mentioned was after Hurricane Andrew in Florida, which was about, what, 1992, I think, or the early 90s, so it's been at least 20 years, what they saw or seeing now is you have a lot of um, dry uh, wallboard. Um, what is it called? Dry, 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 dry wall. Dry wall, right. Yeah. Sorry. You have a lot of drywall in 
uh, in these ways because you're basically tearing apart your house and that yeah. drywall has a lot of gypsum. So now you have a lot of hydrogen sulfide generation. Ooh. Yes. Uh, so that's an odor that impacts communities. But what's not looked at is that hydrogen sulfide now gets into the gas system for the landfill. And a lot Ooh, of these land that's bad. Right. And so a lot of these landfills have power generators. Basically, they're taking the methane gas, combusting it for renewable energy, which is a great benefit to society. But once that hydrogen sulfide gets into those power generators, it starts uh, corrosion and uh, affecting those equipment. Not to mention that hydrogen sulfide is highly toxic. Yes. And so now you're looking at all their power generators that cost $200,000 to uh, fix those are added costs to the landfill that we don't realize is occurring because of this waste debris. Wow. That is wild. This is going to be an episode of Freakonomics. My goodness. Right. <laughs> right. So I, we need to look at these natural disasters from not just from the very beginning, but also what are the life cycle costs over the entire course of um, disposal of waste debris. And so that's wow. kind of an area that I'm interested in as well. That is really awesome. And I can honestly say I never thought I would be saying that about waste disposal, but that is really, really cool. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's all from the 2016 flood. Yeah. Man. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what's next for your, your research. Um, do you have a, a website or something that folks can follow along with uh, everything that you're, you're doing? Sure thing. It's uh, www.lsu.edu forward slash Jafari. That's my website. Awesome. We'll be sure to post a link to that so everybody can follow along with the great things you're doing. Uh, I mean, thanks again for the, the time today. This has been really awesome and looking forward to seeing what's next for you. And uh, yeah, definitely uh, looking forward to seeing how you use all the rapid equipment. That's um, going to be really cool. Absolutely. Well, in Louisiana, we need we need it, so we're going to be using it. I appreciate right. it, Dan, as well, for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Design Safe Radio. This show is sponsored by the National Science Foundation and NARI. You can subscribe to Design Safe Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please leave us a review so we can improve the show. These also help others find our episodes in iTunes. Thanks for your feedback and your support. You can find out more about NARI at designsafe-ci.org, on Facebook at Design Safe Radio, or on Twitter at NARI Design Safe. Thanks for listening.